I'm Mike Wood. And I'm Justin DeGlue. And you're listening to the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast. Where we read very fine comic books. Things we like and we hope you like too. Today we will be talking about Copra by Michelle Fife. It is a uh, independently published comic book that may look a little bit, eh, just a little bit, like The Suicide Squad. But then it is done in a way that DC would never let anyone do a comic book. But should if they were cooler. So we will talk about that very soon. But first we talk about what we've been reading. And I can start with... Uh, I recently picked up at The Beguiling, as mm-hmm. I tend to do, looking at what their new trade paperbacks are every week. And there's one that caught my eye, published by Fantagraphics Underground, and it was called Doors Danger Giant Monsters Amok by Chris Wisnia and Ricky Sprague. Shock, fright, thrills. Uh, <laughs> I read it anyway, is the quote Stanley on the cover. <laughs> I, this looks so 1960s, but also is not. It? So the gimmick with this comic is that it does look like uh, the 19... Oh, is it the 60s or is it the 50s? Well, I guess... Yeah, pre-Marvel Atlas comics would have been Atlas like 50s comics. and such. And so these were comics uh, drawn uh, by the likes of Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, and they were mostly written by Stan Lee. And basically the gimmick of this comic is that it uh, says that it's presenting these lost issues of the comic Doris Danger, and what it really is is just satire. It's parody comics. These are not ones that actually existed. You would never know flipping through it because they make it look old, and there's like scribbles as if a kid drew on it. <laughs> like that's the best possible, possible quality copy they could find yep, to that's digitize they that's really clever this is kind of a, <laughs> a parody of you gotta be really deep in the trenches there's a lot of public domain comic books that were, were never copyrighted that get published in like these hard covers that mm. you see like litter used bookstores you've seen those right like, where it's just pirate comics yes and or stuff. it's like the haunt of terror it's like wait a minute <laughs> this is different uh, Tabloia takes quality seriously a note of our, our, our archival integrity <laughs> So, and then it explains why they look the way they they do. And basically the whole book, and I'm not sure if these are like recollections of things that um, the authors had done before. I get the feeling it is, like they had published other editions. This is kind of like the ultimate version of that. Because if you look at the copyright note, it says... Original Doris Danger, Giant Monster Adventures, published in Tabloia Weekly Magazine, Crude Bay, Southern California, copyright 1952, 1953, 1954, uh, it's just kind of like almost like non sequiturs referencing to like previous issues that do not exist. Uh, it always starts right in the middle of a story and then you're like, what is going on? Now, it, have you read any of these, the old like Atlas era monster I comics? I through them. They're like okay. very cookie cutter yeah. and like they're iconic like from a monster design uh, for a reason, mm-hmm. but like they're very samey. Like I couldn't tell you which one I read and which one I The did. monsters themselves are fairly interchangeable. Like they're more notable today for like the covers. And the design sometimes, but... Uh, there's some really funny, just if you read like the first page, it's like, Nerni na, the thing that was probably alive. <laughs> 
It's not that funny, Mike. I'm spiking the meat. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the phrasing of that. And uh, it says, like, repeat, it's wearing underpants. Where did it get those underpants? They fit so snug, and the color is so flattering for the fiend skin tone. This is a real mystery. It couldn't have money to buy underpants. And gasp, it doesn't even have the coordination to sew. And so, like, if you just look at the page, it looks like a classic one. But then if you read it, you're like, wait, what's going on? One of the running gags in the comic, too, is that everyone is like, and I unmasked myself to reveal i am a robot this happens over <laughs> and over again in these comics so uh if you think the particular like satire of these old things sounds fun to you yeah. and that you want a whole book of it grab it because it is exactly the way that i describe oh look there's even a bill plimpton drawing oh here. wow but th- i think these are old drawings i've seen these before so it's weird they're including it as like pinups here so maybe he's licensing and reprinting them because he did credit all the different artists at the start mm. Yeah, because there's like a million p- pinups of like the guy who did Monkey Man and O'Brien. Okay. I think there's some Jeff Darrow art in here as well. So, uh, fun stuff. Yeah. What are you reading, Mike? Well, Justin, as you know, you don't know this. <laughs> I do love... Uh, number ones. No, well, yeah, I've been checking a lot of number ones lately. I also love uh, British mystery shows. I've grown up with them, like mm-hmm. Hercule Poirot and such. You are a 75-year-old uh, uh, I've been, auntie. I've been a 75-year-old British auntie since I was three years old, watching uh, PBS Mystery. Turn on the PBS mother. <laughs> oh, it's Diana Rigg. She's introducing this Poirot, but offering me a PBS tote bag first. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you read? Uh, I've been reading... A new number one that just came out recently called The Great British Bump Off. Oh, that's like a parody of The Great British Bake Off. But a murder mystery. So my eyes just rolled right over that when I saw it on the shelf uh, a couple weeks ago. Justin is clearly not interested, and I found this absolutely delightful. Do you watch The Great British Bake Off? I've seen random episodes, okay. and I mean, I guess like modern reality TV I'm not so into, but whenever there's like something that's very droll and Yeah, well, British, people say like, it's very uncompetitive. Yeah. It's like no high stakes or anything like that. Yeah, I kind of like that. Like mm-hmm. it's, yeah. uh, I would like that too. I'll catch a random one now and then. I mean, it, I, I can't stay american reality tv as much as uh, some other podcast co-hosts of yours um mm-hmm. but uh mark hansen of the Bay Street video podcast yes, yes. anything very like british and twee i'm all about <laughs> my, just like my stepmom <laughs> uh, very much so we should hang out sometime actually why don't i co-host a podcast also with her that would be uh, about like british uh things Britishisms. yeah yeah so the premise of this is that it's uh you know a great british bake-off type show and there's a bunch of like non-professional chefs from all walks of life and on page one you were introduced to every single one of these people here's a choir master digital technician meteorologist buyer uh, retired midwife pharmacist bus driver street musician yoga instructor student marketing assistant and database programmer and uh, they're all going to be competing in the show over the next 12 weeks or so and uh, mid taping of the first episode one winds up dead and as the producers talk about what to do, one of the other contestants, who is the main character in this series, proposes like, no, no, keep the show going. Like, I'm also like a, you know, amateur mystery solver. I mean, she just seems very, you know, starry eyed and eager to be part of this uh, with no credentials. And they decide to do exactly that for the sake of the show and ratings and whatnot. So the show is continuing as she tries to sort of get to know each other contestant and try and whittle down like who the murderer might be and make her own notes and charts and things like that. And at its core, it's a comedy. Like it's not as intense as like, you know, a classic uh, Agatha Christie or Hercule Pro type story. It's a, uh, it's colorful. It's cartoonish. It's whimsical. I'm surprised. I love these characters. Dark Horse. And it, yeah, that shocked me too. Dark Horse, who have the word dark right in the title. Well, mostly that they don't <laughs> really do original properties anymore. Yeah, Dark Horse, um, it seems like an aberration for them. They're doing a lot of licensed stuff these days, which is 
fine, and uh, everything I read is still great. <laughs> we love our co- our um, cultural overlords, and that what uh, what are the I guess the Enter- what's that group? The Embracer Group? Yeah, the Embracer yeah. Group that own everything. <laughs> do they own Dark Horse now. They I think do. They do. Yeah, oh. and like a ton of different other like comic publishers and video game publishers and this and that. But um, you know, maybe we'll get the uh, like you know mega budget virus AAA video game sometime as a result. But yeah, this was delightful. I'll be reading more of this. And so this week we're talking about Copra. Mm-hmm. And this is a comic that is kind of based on the Suicide Squad. So we should talk about that a little bit. Very overtly yes. based on the Suicide Squad, but just different enough that maybe DC like won't or can't or wouldn't be bothered to sue over. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Suicide Squad is a team. And this is something that like the comic doesn't really make clear that like they're a team of criminals that were meant to sent on these missions. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing about this comic is I don't know, like if I want to recommend it to someone, if they will find it too overwhelming because the way that Fife writes is kind of like, I'm dropping you media res Mm -hmm. and almost like you're catching glimpses of things happening or thoughts from people of events and things like that. It's a little abstract. It makes, it makes you work for it. And that is a very abstract artist. Um, Yeah. I did find even being, very familiar with John Ostrander's awesome original Suicide Squad comics from DC that approaching Copra and being familiar with the format of the Suicide Squad, I still had to sort of get my brain into a different space to parse out how he was telling his story. So I will say that when I read this comic for the first time, probably in 2014, and I had learned about it off of uh, boingboing.net, which was a site I used to uh, read at work. Mm. Did you ever go to boingboing.net? Never. It's fun to say. Yep. It was had tons of news. I'm sure it probably still exists in a shadow of its former it's self. It's probably been bought by the Embracer, Embracer Group. group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And just hearing that someone was doing a superhero monthly comic completely independently, I was like, ooh, yes, please. And uh, so I remember reading the first issue, which was posted online for free. And then I was hooked from then on out. And I did not or had not read any Suicide Squad comic. Hmm. So all of these superheroes, even though I kind of, or supervillains, because that's what Suicide Squad is, uh, if I recognized them, it was probably only in passing. And I I, I felt I didn't need that kind of... um, grounding to understand who these characters were and as the story goes on it almost gets like more abstract as it goes and it's like just don't struggle with it and just take in the art and like the storytelling on a page per page basis and that's the best way i feel to consume this comic book that's a that's good advice there's something about it that feels like very like 1980s euro comic yes 100 or something but not in the density no but in that it's a little atypical and you have to kind of like just go with it like Lone Sloan where it's like you're on this adventure yeah. and things aren't going to make like sense like heavy metal style comics yeah, like too. don't try to put everything in a box of like who is this character who is this character what is their relation mm-hmm. and like as the comic goes on it almost even gets more and more abstract and on the point of it being a Suicide Squad ripoff ripoff using kind of the character archetypes to tell its own stories I've seen uh, Fife talk about like listen every comic then is uh, a fan comic because like unless you're 
uh, Bill Finger or Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko, and you're writing those comics, then those are fan comics, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what difference does it make as long as it's, you know, a story that's engaging and that you're getting into it? Yeah. Uh, so, you, the comic starts with a bunch of people that are doing a mission, and we have, uh, I like, I don't know their names in the comic, but I can point at them and go, oh, yeah, that's Dr. Light. Who's Dr. Light a villain of? Dr. Light was a very early Justice League villain. He's actually one of my favorite DC villains of all time because he was so ridiculous, and that is, of course, in until uh, Brad Meltzer turned him retroactively into oh, some maniacal rape? rapist yeah. in a horrible, horrible miniseries. But before that, for decades, he's basically Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. Okay. He was always one of those, like, I'm the smartest person in the room kind of uh, characters mm-hmm. who always just had, you know, powers to generate and manipulate light. And then you have Grace Jones mm-hmm. uh, stand-in who just knows great martial arts. Literally yeah. named Grace. In you this. have an Iron Man style stand-in, uh, but it's like a big bulky robot suit. You have uh, I'd, someone with green hair who's very good with weapons, and we learn it's from another dimension. I don't remember what her stand-in is in. Uh, and then we have a character that I said, oh, it's definitely Wildcat. And Mike pointed out, I think it's probably, um, what's his name? Rick Flagg. Rick Flagg, who's Flagg's, the leader. Yeah, he's supposed to be like the main stalwart of the Suicide But I was squad. like, uh, Rick Flagg never wore a, a suit or anything like that. So that's yeah. why I was like, oh, it's kind of wild. And you know what? It doesn't have to be a one-on-one. It's also a mix of them. Yeah. And so like in this first issue i think it starts fairly conventionally it's like people are on a mission and then they get attacked by a classic um you know a abstract villain which is why where fife loves to go wild with it where it's like this person could not exist in real life or be portrayed in live action in any way yeah this looks like something from my favorite arc in grant morrison's doom patrol with the brotherhood of dada yes if you remember that where yeah it's just kind of like shapes and things like that i think they make a little bit more sense in fife's uh stuff because in grant morrison's like here's an idea oh what does it do are you going to define it no (laughs) let's move (laughs) on and like uh, I think one of Fife's strengths, he's a great action storyteller too, mm-hmm. is that like that is one of the great joys of reading the comic is that through panel layout and movement, uh, he always achieves some wild things. And we didn't even really talk about like, who would you compare his art to? Because like, it's not really anything you would see in the mainstream. If anything, it's hearkening back to almost like, you know, very uh, smooth lines. Everyone is always in motion, but he also illustrates it in a way that it almost feels like he's drawing with crayons because of the lightness of the colors on the page. Yeah, I'd be hard pressed to compare it to anyone. Mm-hmm. It seems like its own very, very distinct style. Like even a lot of the you know aforementioned uh, like nineteen eighties Euro artists that I love. Like this is very, very distinct and new and fresh. While still feeling like sort of classical and comfortable. Now, Fife said that when he was younger, that he just wanted to draw superhero comics and that he would go to conventions. He had a portfolio. He would show everyone. And basically the answer every time was like, hey, you need to work on this and this and this. And he says that one of his biggest mistakes in life is that he would never take any of that advice to heart. Instead, he'd be like, they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) And then he would just go down his own path. And I... I would say that I think that's helped him in the sense that he's clearly developed his own like sense of style when it comes to this. Yeah. That is like nothing else, but it is a little bit in competition with what we consider kind of modern day comics and Mm -hmm. what they're supposed to look like that someone may flip this open and go, Oh, well it looks a little too cartoony to me, which I mean, that's not an issue with me at all. As long as the storytelling is as dynamic as it is here, but I can understand other people bouncing off of it. Like, when you saw this, were you like, what the hell is this? 
like when you cracked it open? Not really. I mean, but I, I look for the atypical very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the first thing that stood out as like a little bit, now I don't want to say this is a bad thing, but just like different was uh, the coloring. Yeah. There's something that's yeah, uh, very earth tony Crayonish uh, yeah. about it. Yeah. And and the sort of uh, the, the tan background and like aesthetic to everything was a bit unexpected. So uh, when we're talking about this book, we're actually flipping through, I think it's called the Ultimate Edition or the Deluxe Edition that was recently mm-hmm. published by uh, Image Comics, which collects the first 12 issues in an oversized format. But I actually have the uh, first trade paperback, I believe bought right off of uh, FIFA at a tomorrow comics arts convention and like this one the earth tones feel like a quality of the paper because it's not glossy and it's like i don't know how i would describe it but like it's not also cheap like it's not newspaper yeah print. like it's a little thicker than that right which actually gives it a different kind of feel than it does in the oversized glossy version yeah this first printing from bergen street books is like very textured and, and mm-hmm. matted and the page stock itself is a little bit uh like tan which then sort of makes the tan coloring sort of feel like it's a product of the page and not of like a deliberate choice. Yeah. But then the image stock of this deluxe edition uh, version from Image Comics is like glossy page, uh, white print job. So the the tanness of things stands out a little more. Yeah. Like and, it looks like in the Bergen Street Press book that like these comics have gone through a few generations before you read them, mm-hmm. which I think is an association that like kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s, those were the comics that they would read, right? Which yeah. Which is like, oh, this has been left maybe out in the sun a little long, that it's worn and that it's had a history. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I like that. I also love the kind of clarity yeah. of this uh, deluxe edition, which uh, Fife was very much involved with. So I've heard him talk about the physical uh, kind of edition of his books and he says that he wants everyone to feel different mm. so like i have some single issues unfortunately i don't have them in on my uh the desk here because they're in storage he prints in the thickest cardboard stock the pages mm-hmm. i have ever seen a comic book i've never seen comic book pages as rigid and thick as the one that he does in his book yeah i have a single standalone issue mm-hmm. of copra was it the is, image one or was it uh when a self-published uh, one? I, I don't remember now because i impulse bought it and um was the single issue series always self-published yeah and then uh, image only does the trades is that no, it? image did do single issues for a little while they okay. did like a little saga and i don't know what the exact details are mm. but they kind of switched it up afterwards and decide or he decided like no i want it to be independent again okay. maybe because of the we've discussed the image pays only twice a year uh format that they do it in. yeah which you know i mean i guess can be good if you're working on other things or you have like a bit of a nest egg or cushion for that but mm. if you're waiting for image to pay you out versus publishing it yourself and just getting paid as you go then that can yeah be he like ships them too like i've seen images of him like preparing the things to go out i had a subscription to the newest like three issue run that he did as well Mm. and uh he even said that like some of the earliest stuff that he published he did them in like magazine format so like oh wow wider and like but people would complain that like you can't put these in uh, comic book bags they don't fit in like spinner racks or stuff like that yeah all right copra i'm gonna go back to you know more comic book size although that size is back now with dc's uh black Black label label, because those are published in the old like magazine comic size Mm -hmm. something that i never knew until only a couple of years ago that like comic book size has actually changed from like 
the golden age, I think, to the silver age. That mm. like, if you go and buy bags and boards, they're gonna ask you like, which one do you want? Oh yeah, Beguiling has a separate boxes for like silver age bags and boards, modern bags and boards, etc. Mm. Yeah. Because they have like completely different sizes, and that's something that I kind of love about Fife is that he is obsessed with just the history of comics and the things that have influenced him. If you look, follow him on Twitter, or he has a very active Facebook group where people will post like, oh, this is my favorite page from like this Punisher War Zone number seventeen or something. Look who's inking. This is the best inker that ever worked with this person. Like really getting into the weeds of kind of like, I, I'll say commercial comic books, but like, and what they love about these people who at the time that they were releasing these books were um, just factory line stuff that mm -hmm. like, you know, comes out, make some money, move on. And just kind of like breaking those down and like, what is the artistry out of these? I mean, like Fife, I feel like, you know, I've read some of his earlier stuff. I think Dark Horse uh, published a collection of them. He has one called like, oh, I don't have the title in front of me, but there's like two other books. One of them that was a web comic that he did that was republished. And those comics are like very abstract, mm. like to the point that you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. And I think that's what he likes is mm. that like, can I create a visual story in what I'm uh, telling to make it like really compelling, even though that you don't need to follow every thread, whether I'm in control of them or not. I mean, you've read uh, some of the, uh, you know, other work that he's done for other companies. Like he did a GI Joe comic for IDW and he also did a blood strike mini series. Mm -hmm. And oh boy, to get into this, what is blood strike? That is like <laughs> tail end of the image extreme era. Yeah, that was yet another uh, Rob Liefeld series that was uh, seemingly created just to sell a number one. <laughs> yep, but there were 20-ish issues, I think, of Bloodstrike. Uh, there were, but uh, yes, I, I think exactly 19 or 20 issues. And uh, Bloodstrike number one, infamously, the cover gimmick was that it had blood on it. Oh, did it? Yeah, blood that was like heat sensitive uh, or light sensitive. So depending on like if you're holding the title or, or not, like... Uh, you can see it. Yeah, the, these blood splotches would appear on the cover. Uh, and the, the, the gimmick was actually comic was that it was a tomb of superheroes they keep dying and coming back to life because mm -hmm. they were like zombie people and this basically. is in the early 90s mind you mm. and then fifa's continuation was just a couple years ago well we'll get into so, this yeah. it was not a continuation it was um so from what i recall there was a number zero so it was a story before the image comic blood strike started mm -hmm. and then there was a printing error in uh the original blood strike series where they skipped the number oh, and wow. fifa did an issue in between like oh what would have been the comic in between these two oh, issues that's amazing but what's wild about that is that fifa's miniseries assumes that like you love bloodstrike <laughs> a comic that has never been collected no anywhere so like you would have to go into the back issue and i've looked for some of them there's issues here or there but like they are not easy to find and the, it like Fifi, Fifi's miniseries is, is like, what if we lived in a world where it was super popular <laughs> and like these things matter? So like reading his comic, like there was kind of an error thrust to it, but like the characters, it makes an assumption, you know, these Bloodstrike characters, you love them and you want to see what happens to like, you know, in between the lines. Yeah, I bought those in single issues and I'd be hard pressed to tell you what the actual story was, mm -hmm. but loved flipping through it for that reason. Like that was my takeaway was this comic is like a sort of purposely like manufacturing a nostalgia that didn't mm -hmm. exist and i thought that was really clever angle. and like in the back pages it was also filled with ads of image comics that don't exist <laughs> that was as amazing well. <laughs> and i actually had to do a double take when i read it going like wait wait is like these artists doing these comics? Yeah. Are they doing like a Young Blood reboot or something like that? Well, I think I might be wrong. I think it was for one of those Fifa Bloodstrike issues that Rob Liefeld did a variant cover of an, a character called the Pouch, 
and it was yes. made up of pouches and his gun was yeah, made that's of something that he did yeah. online uh or somebody drew it as a joke because or, yes it was a liefeld homage yeah perhaps. because liefeld is famous for having characters covered in pouches yeah and uh yeah so liefeld files all right i'll do a pouch issue and that's what he did mm-hmm. it's interesting that like uh fife said that he did it because um he was trying to get that gi joe comic off the ground and i idw was like dragging their feet hmm. being like oh we gotta wait for this or that and he's like oh i just want to do something and he just contacted rob leafield and he's like can i do a blood strike miniseries and rob was like yeah no <laughs> problem do it that's great <laughs> like that <laughs> rob rules that he can just like approach him with that idea and he'd be like oh yeah that rocks let's go with it rob does rule and you know what a lot of people like you know mock his art style of that era but he is just one of the most wholesome nice like mm. owning up to all of that like people you will ever see talk about comics what would be the rob like if we were going to do a rob leefield title on this podcast I would pick something very uh, out there that no one talks about, like his Battlestar Galactica series. Oh, okay. Yeah. He did a, a Snake Eyes series recently that he was very passionate I about. I heard good things about that. Yes. Yeah. Or do we do Youngblood and try to struggle through that? You know what? We could do like two Rob Liefeld episodes, like one of like classic Rob and one of like the Into the Weeds, like stuff no one talks about, mm. maybe. I don't know. But getting back to Copra, yeah. so you're reading through this. Were you surprised where you're like, oh, wait, I guess the Punisher is in this now? Yeah, so at the start, they're very clearly analogs to all the Suicide Squad characters, including Amanda Waller, the handler of the Suicide Squad, and the ones who sends them out on these suicide missions. Yeah. She looks exactly like it. Like, yeah, they're like not even really attempting to like obfuscate any of this mm-hmm. and and i love that uh but then they start meeting some marvel characters like the punisher like dr strange and clea and uh that was really interesting to me because then it's not just a suicide squad thing but something that kind of grows beyond that to being more of like an analog to popular comics themselves mm-hmm. and i think i need to again emphasize that like this comic could never be published by Marvel or DC. Like, they just wouldn't go for it. There's a funny story that... So I believe he started doing this uh, series, and Marvel reached out, and they were like, oh, man, we love you. We love your work. I think it was Brian McHale Bendis. And he's like... And he was like, oh, wow, Marvel wants me to work for them? And they went, can you write a comic for us? And he went... Uh, okay, I guess. So FIFA wrote, I think it was like New Ultimate Avengers or something like that. And he did something like six issues. And he's like, I don't want to write comics though. Like I want to draw comics. Hmm. But I think that just speaks to like, they think that his art is too weird, I guess, for... And when I say it's too weird, like people look these... It doesn't look weird. Like, it's not like, oh, I don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I don't think this is particularly, like, uh, you know, off-putting or, uh, to normies or something like that. Like, this is, like, absolutely, like, beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's more stylistic than yeah. it is, like, quote-unquote weird. Yeah, stylized or uh-huh. just the approach. Like, there's a character named Dee Dee in the comics who's, like, just a, a floating brain that has two eyes with um, eyelashes just glued on. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, look at this panel here of Dee Dee oh. just, like, blasting someone and you see all the skin, like, flying off of their face. And that was just the poor, like, aide who was mm-hmm. affixing the fake eyes to Dee Dee's brain jar. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> that was great. It, it's kind of great, like, the impossibility of these comics, mm-hmm. of, like, these shapes and the forms. But then when you tie it to a kind of immediate storytelling that is very compelling. I love this. I was surprised though. I gave this to a friend who loves Suicide Squad. He was mm-hmm. like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious to like what he would have bounced off of if it was the kind of, because 
it's it's interesting that when you compare it to John Ostrander's run on Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. there is not a more kind of straight ahead artistically comic than those. Like, I know a bunch of pencilers worked on it, yeah. but there's a very uniform style to those comics because it was also coming out in the 80s at DC. Yeah, the penciling on Suicide Squad, the original Ostrander run, was very like house style. Mm-hmm. There was no sort of really like auteur angle to that. Um but I thought that book at the time was remarkable for how fast paced it was. They weren't doing a lot. I mean, very few people were doing like a six issue arc or writing for the trade, but it is like a done in one mission or maybe two issues at most. Like, Even though there's a suicide squad, every time it gets rebooted, it's always like, who will die? Oh, there's nobody that no one cares about. Yeah, gonna now. Yeah. 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 Back then, DC had so many characters. They were, I think, okay killing off people who didn't around for kill that many off, though. I yeah. mean, especially now that you reread it and that you know that the core characters are dead shot. Yeah. Uh, Will Smith. We all love him, right? <laughs> uh, Captain Boomerang, who mm-hmm. will never die in those comics. Never. He's the kind of like scummy, not good person who continually survives and is included in every mission. I guess now Harley Quinn is always part of the Suicide like Squad. Now she's intrinsically linked to it forever because of the movies. So that's And I'm fine. trying to think of like who the other core Suicide Squad members are. Because I guess, yeah, the other one is, wasn't... Um, the woman with the samurai sword. Yeah, Katana, Katana was yeah. O- uh, often a staple. Whoa, watch out. It's Steel Souls, to quote the classic Suicide Squad movie. Yes, yes. Um, I do sense that, like, in these Copra comics, and I, I wish I could talk about all 12, but Mike only read the first six. You know, if you want to, go ahead, honestly, because I'm going to reread, uh, or not reread, I'm going to read, like, 7 through 12 ASAP. I loved number six. Well, yeah. I love the first volume the so much. The only reason I told Mike yeah. to read the 12 is just that, like, it's interesting to see uh, Fife evolve over such a heavy time crunch. Mm. And like, okay, so what kind of stories do I tell within this universe when I have to pump out one 24-page issue every week? And what he ends up doing is that he starts to focus issues less on the group and more centering it on a character that is part of the group. And like, what's interesting is that like when you get kind of like, um, you know captions in the comics you have to do the mental gymnastics to figure out who is talking i like that and that pops up in those first six issues too yeah where it's like oh is this supposed to be the amanda waller analog or who is this supposed to be and that feels intended too Mm. like you're not supposed to instantly know no you're not supposed to and there'll be some captions that run through a whole issue and it might be like a third of the way into the issue where you realize oh that's who's saying this and something that fife loves doing as well is kind of like destroying the expected way that you read comics where like panels like will suddenly get like garbled and like words will be cut off in them or it's mm-hmm. like a nonsense word or people will talk and instead of a word like an image will appear when they talk about like the basic premise of the comic is that I know we're this far in and I haven't told you but it's like Suicide Squad that's really all you need to know that is the premise yeah is that uh, there is a um, like lightning bolt MacGuffin that everybody is chasing because it gives you like ultimate power and uh, at the beginning a whole town gets exploded and it's uh, blamed on Copra and they have to go on the run and try to figure out who is actually the person that is um, blamed for this. And some of the stuff that he does with color, like he loves to do like, and this is something that you never see, or at least I never see that much. I'm sure that uh, Fife could point to like one artist who would do is the way you highlight an action to kind of focus the viewer's eyes Mm -hmm. on it, oftentimes changing uh, color of it or the way that like, for example, there's a panel where people get 
kicked out of a building and the window crash uh, breaking and the characters are white, but everything around it is gray and black except for the top of the building, which is kind of like a brownish color. Like, yeah, everything's so eye-catching. Like it's... the color science in this is like next level in yeah. that it's so intrinsic to the way that, you know, the storytelling is supposed to be read that comics don't really do because coloring is often handled by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that like, you know, the main creative mind, the writer or the artist can kind of guide the colorist. But, you know, choices need to be made. Like you could look at stuff and be like, at this and be like, oh, did the blue lines get messed up or something like that? But no, it's just a decision. For example, like a panel of someone bending over to get into a bag and everything past his knees, mm-hmm. there's no more color. Yeah. It's all black and white. But everything before that, there's brown, including the, uh, you know, floor, which kind of like goes away. And the floor only really exists to create dimension in the frame. Yeah, on any auteur project like this, uh, where someone has done every aspect of it mm. themselves, I always am interested in like hyper analyzing the color like that and looking for deliberate choices along those lines. You're saying, and it it adds to sort of the visual language of the book in such an extreme way. Uh, so who was your favorite character in the first six issues of Copra, Mike? I love this uh, Shade the Changing Man type character who originally... Now, I, I kind of forgot what Shade the Changing Man's original like uh, space vest Yeah, you like. imagine the... I think it was the later Alan Vertigo Grant character. or Peter Milligan. Peter Milligan, yeah. yeah designed... Uh, there was a long-running series called Shade the Changing Man under Vertigo where he had more of like a Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat kind of look. Um, Wait, so was Ch- Shade the Changing Man? He seems like he escaped from like Jack Kirby's New God I series. Think he, wasn't he a Steve Ditko? Oh, was character? he a Steve Ditko I character? I believe he might have been. Mm, and that uh, makes sense. But yeah, but it has a very like. Oh, was he a? He wasn't a Charlton character, was he? Let's look that up. Yeah. Wait, it uh, just came to me in a flash. Not me looking it up as my phone as we were talking. But yeah, Shade the Changing Man was a uh, DC comic book character who debuted in his own series in 1977, uh, illustrated and I assume written by Steve Ditko. Who or what is the shit changing man, a new kind of hero from Steve Ditko? Yeah, and his design in the original look and in this book, like you just said as well, very like almost Kirby-esque with like the uh, the lines and the spheres on his uh, his magical vest thing. Mm. And uh, But I love the way he comes into this story and the whole introduction of him being tortured by that crystalline character and then going into that weird alternate dimension and then somehow just via fluke of like the Doctor Strange character banishing that mindless one. Yeah, what is the dimension that Doctor Strange always goes to? Uh, The netherworld, not the negazone. That's like The negazone something else. The My brain is torn between trying to think of a really funny answer and trying to remember the real answer. You know what? I'm looking it up right now. I don't know if there's a particular like name for the dimension other than like the extra dimensional, the Ditko dimension that they Let, go Let's to. call it that because Ditko created Doctor That's Strange That's funny that well. like the Shade the Changing Man Ditko created character would then meet the characters by going through the Doctor Strange dimension to get yeah. to them. Well, I remember when I was first reading John Ostrander's Suicide Squad run, that character was like a weird blind spot to me because mm. he's not a villain. He's not like someone who like the rest is incarcerated and being you know coerced into doing these suicide missions. He just kind of... And similar to this book, just kind of appears out of nowhere uh, as if he was, you know, on some sort of other adventures since his initial mm-hmm. Ditko uh, run. And I just don't know what he's been up to or who he is. And so I always like those wildcard characters who come into the mix and wind up sticking around to help out. Well, this guy sticks around, and if you had read the other six issues, Mike, it kind of becomes about him because they go to his dimension and they, like, uh, deal with what are the looming threats, including stuff that 
it's funny because I say like, oh, you know, you can just kind of like let yourself go with the flow. But if you read it very carefully, that like stuff will be set up in issue two that pays off in issue seven, which mm. I remember was a little difficult for me to follow when I was reading issue to issue because there would be long gaps in between them that I'd be like, wait, this is a reference to something else. But now that it's published in this easy to read, like 12 issue deluxe edition, uh, and I would recommend reading in this deluxe edition because like the like... Um, you know, split uh, full two-page splashes. Mm. You can read them. It looks like it was actually done on purpose that it's actually a split in the spine so you can lay it out and just see everything that's happening. This is an example that we're looking at right now of like complex visual storytelling that's doing really interesting stuff that you have this very complex almost Mobius-style cityscape mm -hmm. and then you have uh, the Shade, the Changing Man guy attacking a bunch of people but it's all in one two-page splash there's no boxes breaking it up but he appears multiple times as his actions are happening so you can kind of follow the thread of him doing all of these things on the page mm -hmm. this kind of reminds me of who illustrated the frank miller run of daredevil uh claus jansen yeah didn't claus jansen do that a lot well, where they frank be... miller draw it himself and claus jansen was the anchor oh he was the anchor i think that okay. was it yeah um, is that kind of, uh, which is very complicated for people, the kind of like shadow, like, you know, you see that sometimes in 80s comic books where someone will do an action and you see kind of like ghost versions of them going mm. through every Yes, movie. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, this feels like that sort of thing here. And yeah, so you can feel Fife like taking ideas or concepts from comic books that he loves yeah. and then just expanding on them and pushing them basically to their limit. Like the way that magic is illustrated in this comic is wild where it's like, weird kind of ill-defined shape yeah going in very abstract brains. it's as if like the whole page is finished and then he's drawing like someone, like, like, on top of on it top of yeah, it. yeah yeah or like characters are just they look like a anatomical drawings of like muscles but all squished in together mm -hmm. yeah there's just uh beautiful stuff to see on every page and it's meant to just be soaked in and as like the basic premise is the suicide squad so yeah. you can follow that from the beginning of like oh a bunch of kind of criminals who are on a mission they get burned and then they have to figure out where it goes from there and what you said a couple minutes ago about the shade the changing man guys stuff being set up in issue two to pay off like somewhere between seven and twelve i did get that sense early on mm -hmm. so even with him doing those first six issues uh, initially, I got the sense that like this can and will and should last longer. And, and I think it's up to what, 36 issues now? Like, Yeah, well, he's almost done. Okay. He says that he has like a couple more issues and that'll be like the finale. Okay. I do feel that it's also linked to that feeling when you were a kid and you picked up a comic hmm. and that you could follow kind of what was going on, but you felt there was a bigger world where more adventures had happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that Fife is like trying to tap into that, hmm. that sense of like, this is not just this thing, that there's so much that lives beyond it. And I want to, kind of you know it may be a little bit uh overwhelming when you yeah. read it at first but that's the feeling that he's going for. oh yeah like i love for example along those lines when we meet the punisher character and he's living in this abandoned like facility and we finally meet his roommates and it's those three other vigilantes and one of them clearly looks like that x-men villain who is oh like, yeah the, he's a tank tread torso <laughs> like uh, attached to a tank and uh, uh did that and come out he implies or after the uh empire pictures film oh what is it called the the eliminators oh yeah where there was a guy that yeah, wrote there was a 
good. I think I think Marvel might have copied that. Who knows? But uh, he, the Punisher character implies like, oh yeah, you know, we we do missions together, right? mm-hmm. or I'll and try and keep roommates. them busy, and we're yeah. roommates. And I'm like, I want to see that comic too. Mm-hmm. That's he great. did do a spinoff series called Copra Versus. Oh okay, which has never been collected until the next trade paperback is going to collect those five issues for the first time. Oh, that's anywhere. great. So, and this was an indie comic, so for a long time it was hard to get. Like mm. these Bergen Street Press issues, they were published by uh, Fife's like local comic book shop Mm -hmm. and so like eventually i think that comic book shop is closed now so like you can't get these but thankfully image stepped in and they republished them so if you get a copra trade paperback now just like the floppy ones they're uh published by image so probably volume one is very cheap and it's kind of a bummer because image did do a hard push on copra i know they did like a free comic book day issue which i believe was the first issue of the comic Mm. uh and then they did like an arc and then i think fifa just decided "Eh, i don't want to go with them i'm just gonna do it independently again Okay, well, if it works for him, I'm yeah. happy. Uh, th- th- yeah, God, this series is incredible. I'm going to be buying these hardcovers of everything. Like, I Like, look at, this is like yeah. the way he, I mean, we, I feel like we talk about this every week about like how people do sound effects. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a, a, a fascinating kind of like, like he likes to do like blocky. I used to do this when I was in, in junior high, where you like draw a word and you add three dimensionality yeah. to it by like, you know, it's like, wow, look at this optical illusion. I mean, that's that I Art do. College 101, too. Like, just extruding something into a 3D But you never space. see sound effects yeah. like this. Not done that way. Pages. No, no, no. So, yeah. Uh, if you like, you know, again, Suicide Squad, uh, I would highly recommend checking this out. And, like, read the first issue. And if you're like, ooh, I want to know more, maybe yeah. you'll become a favorite. FIFA is one of those guys. And I don't, maybe because he does everything, that, like, I decided at porn. It's like, well, I'm just going to get everything that he does. Like, so, like, I'm subscribed to his comic. I picked up... Uh, Bloodstrike and G.I. Joe as it was being published, mm-hmm. even though I found them impenetrable. Well, specifically the Bloodstrike one. Mm-hmm. And um, I also picked up uh, the other two trade paperbacks of earlier work that have been published by other companies. That's great. Yeah, his style here, this is so phenomenally distinct that... I mean, kind of inverse to what you said a half hour ago about like, oh, who does this remind you of? I mean, like my answer is still nobody, but I think this is going to be one of those things where maybe in 20 years, oh, other like, people's yeah. work will say, this Fife. reminds me of Michael Fife. Yeah. Uh, we keep saying Michael. I think it's Michelle Fife. Yeah, yes, I'm a Michael, so I'm biased. I hope uh, uh, Fife is like, it's Fife or something like that. I've been calling him Fife all this time. Oh, wow. And yeah, I want action figures of these characters. Like, I would love, like, especially the abstract ones. And it's yeah. like, how would you, um, like, like do the an illustration of these guys? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a little bit more difficult for the ones that are inspired by other characters. If Wizard Magazine were still around, it'd be like, who should play the Grace character? Mm-hmm. Grace Jones. Jones. That would be a whole feature in Wizard Magazine. Even though I think the Captain Boomerang analog, does he use a boomerang in those first six? He years? has some sort of like scythe-esque knives okay, instead. Yes. So like that's the difference there. Um, and the Deadshot analog is like very, very Deadshot. Yeah, he even has like the the like um, wrist guns. Does Deadshot yeah. use wrist guns? Or yeah, it just, yeah, it's like little wrist-mounted uh, mm-hmm. things there. And uh, the Captain Vertigo character. Oh, Count, yeah, Count Vertigo. Vertigo. Yeah, I love that he is like celebrating his birthday in a parade when they go and recruit him again. Yeah. Uh, well, he is a count. He is so a count. He has his own kingdom, and uh, it's all about like the little details yeah. that are kind of like floating on the sides of the stories of like all the adventures that they've had before. Mm-hmm. But here, it's presented in a way that almost feels like you're catching kind of you know somebody's thoughts uh, uncut on the page as it plays out, and I, I just love that. And so I am a FIFA head for life, and I am now as well. I can't wait to pick up and read the rest of these.
As per usual, you can send us letters at the very fine comic book podcast at gmail.com or add us on Instagram at the very fine comic book podcast and send us messages there if you like. Uh, speaking of independent comic book artists, we have a letter here from Michael Carroll, who I know is a big important cinema club fan. So thank you for making the transition, Michael. And he asks, hello, Justin and Mike. Love the show. Back in the early pre-Wikipedia 2000s, I became curious about a fantasy series called Cerebus that I'd see on comic book store shelves in gigantic phone book size volumes, adorned with gorgeous and elaborate black and white art. Over the course of several years, I slowly worked my way through, falling in love with the elaborate, smart, and often touching storylines filled with colorful characters. I'm but... Putting, I'm, I'm putting my finger up. <laughs> and then I got halfway through the series. You know what? I went through the same journey. Uh, okay. I heard Cerebus creator Dave Sims name pop up a couple of times on the show, wondering if maybe uh, if you maybe want to give your listeners a little overview of what Cerebus is, so others don't get so disappointed by the series 150 issues in. Is it 150 issues? I feel I about it was 300. Uh, yeah, I've no, only no. read High Society though, so I'm not. Oh, an you expert. haven't read? Uh, you didn't read the the first Cerebus volume? Not at all. No. Okay, so I'll just get through this letter. Also, do either of you have any strong feelings about Simon? Uh, Gerhard's work? Is that how you think? Gerhard, yeah. I've met him at, a, at Fan Expo. Any insight on where he fits in the Canadian comic book scene in 2023? Best Michael Carroll. Well, in 2023, I don't think he has much of a presence. Do you? Uh, I, I doubt it. I know he does some like weird photocopied like Yeah, he doesn't draw anymore. New, yeah, he, well, he he doesn't draw. He's done some covers. Okay, yeah. For people are like, though. okay, but what are you, yeah. are you talking about? So you're, so, the, you're the Dave Sim expert. I, <laughs> Dave Sim expert. So uh, Dave Sim... He basically uh, popularized uh, phone book size comic books where you collect like 20 to 30 issues in one big, mm -hmm. often printed on like newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that became a big deal for a while. Like we've talked about the Spider-Man comics were published that way. The uh, Stanley, uh, Steve Ditko one. Yeah, but usually other publishers would do them for as a cheap way of reprinting. Yes. With Cerebus, that was the publishing from the get-go. Yep. But he also did single issues. So Dave Sim, I, I want to read this letter because he is kind of a Michelle Fife in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. that, like he did it completely independently. I believe he was able to publish monthly for a long time. I actually have a fascinating uh, guide to self-publishing comics that he wrote, which is like no mm. pictures, just text of him being like, listen, you have to do a page a day. If you can't finish a page a day, you ain't going to publish a monthly comic. Like it's just not going to happen. So like that's a guideline that you have to hit and other like more nitty gritty about like speaking to printers, et cetera, et cetera. And his comic Cerebus started as a parody of Conan the Barbarian, specifically the Marvel Conan the Barbarian comics that were being published. I think, isn't it Barry Windsor Smith like did a bunch of art on he that? He did work on some. Yeah. A lot of uh, awesome Craig talents. Russell did a bunch oh, as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for people who don't know Conan the Barbarian, the comic like, it has so many issues, like thousands? I, at least like several hundred from Marvel, yeah. but it goes back to so many other publishers, mm. uh, It like decades of Conan. And uh, so it started the parody of that, and then it evolved into kind of like an odd political commentary that also had like superhero commentary by way of the tick. Because mm -hmm. you read High Society, right? Because I think Captain Cockroach yeah. is in that. Yeah, High uh, Cerebus Volume Two, High Society, probably is the most famous one on so many like recommended reading lists for any like university good. course, even uh, you know studying the sequential arts. And so what ends up happening though is after a couple volumes after that. So I don't have all the details in front of me right now. From what I understand, Dave Sim got divorced. So his wife, uh, Denis Lubert, who's very important in comics as well, uh, she helped form uh, 
uh, Artvark Varnaheim Press, which did uh, the Cerebus run from issue one to 77. And then she started Renegade Press. You've seen probably comics that have the Renegade logo on them. It's, it rings a bell, but I can't think of anything. Uh, Wordsmith was a Renegade comic. Like if you okay. go into the underground section at BMV or any comic book shop, you'll find a lot. Uh, she uh, helped bring uh, your favorite, Bob Burden's Flaming Carrot. Uh, was published by Renegade oh, yeah. Press. Uh, which uh, begat Mystery Men. Mm-hmm. And so after they got divorced, basically, uh, Day Sim, he became uh, sexist is the broad way to say it, mm-hmm. where he had a whole run about like how women are a void, et cetera, et cetera. And like, this led to a huge kind of explosion where he tried to justify himself and stuff like the Comics Journal. And let's be honest, he, it, it seems like he's just a little bit, you know, he had a bit of a breakdown uh, while doing this stuff. And Cerebus, which his goal from the beginning is like he went around being like, I want to uh, reach issue 300, like as an independent. And they did, but boy, does it crawl over that um, like like final goalpost. Mm. Basically, um, his comic book collaborator, is it uh, Gert? What, what was it? So Gerhardt did a lot of the... Um not the background. Yeah, the background art. So, yeah, if you've ever seen High Society or the covers of it, or Google it right now, you'll see these insanely detailed black and white images of buildings and cities. And that's Gerhardt's work. So, Gerhardt, um, he was like, so kind of like the interest of uh, Cerebus at first is the intricate, hyper detailed backgrounds mixed with Cerebus, who's more cartoony. Mm-hmm. And so, when you mix both of them, it creates like a fascinating kind of visual. Um, you know, it just enhances each other. And you also have um, like, like really funny kind of like uh, typesetting and like, he's very like word balloons and the way that you do that kind of storytelling. And I can't speak to how influential Dave Sim was in Canada early on. Very from what I understand, like people like Gene Day, I believe Gene Day was a mentor to Dave Sim. Uh, Gene Day, an artist I would love to talk about later on who did um, Shang-Chi master of Kung Fu. And Dave Sim was very much involved in that early kind of black and white wave. Uh, the Ninja Turtles and they're like very early on met uh, Cerebus in an issue that Dave Sim now refuses to allow to be published. And when asked by Kevin Eastman why, Dave Sim went, I just don't want it anymore. Just like the issue where Spawn meets Cerebus. Yeah. I think it's like in the first year of Spawn. Issue nine, maybe? Yeah, I I don't think that's in any Spawn recollections. And that issue is also very funny because wasn't that something like, because Neil Gaiman did something as well later on, which led to the big brouhaha. Yeah, I mean, issues with Todd McFarlane are not unique to Dave Sim. What's interesting (laughs) about Image uh, Comics is that at that beginning time, it felt like everybody, just come on, like draw an issue. Yeah, why not? Like uh, Kevin Eastman in the black and white boom, which is separate from the Image boom, he did that a lot of bringing like artists that he just loved and bringing them into the fold to do like fill in issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like uh, Richard Corbin did a bunch of work and like other artists. Uh, Stephen R. Brissett was involved with stuff as well. And that led to other complications because like Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, they were very creators' rights uh, forward. And then there was like a bit of an issue when they started to have to like get people to sign off on stuff and like to the company because to them they said it was too complicated anyway like you know it's 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 interesting to be like oh we're all friends and we're just collaborating and then it's like everything's making a lot of money and it's like all right now we become kind of cutthroat people but anyway so dave sam yeah he just became uh, that issue is yeah and when i mean issue i don't mean single issue i mean 
the rest of the series, mm-hmm. basically. But if I could say something nice about Dave Sim today to address what you were saying, you were asking about, uh, you know, Dave Sim in the present landscape, and this is only based on my knowledge of the very acclaimed High Society mm-hmm. volume. Uh, several years ago, actually, maybe eight to ten years ago at this point, uh, someone approached Dave Sim about uh, like rescanning the original artwork of High Society. And uh, producing like a new, better quality edition that is, you know, better than the newsprint version that is the only version that's existed up till now. And so Dave Sim um, lent him all of the original artwork and uh, the fellow scanned it all. But then his house burned down. It was very tragic. It was in like the CBC news here. Like it was big news that this like, you know, legendary Canadian comic work, like that volume specifically, like of, is, high, society. Is of high society by Dave Sim is yeah, lost. Yeah, wait, have they ever been republished uh, other so, than those phone books? Yeah, so here's what happened. Uh, so thankfully he had scanned it all in advance, um, but uh, the work was lost. Uh, this fellow's house and equipment, everything was just gone. Uh, and so Dave Sim turned the mailing list from the Kickstarter into a, like, let's support this fellow uh, sort of fundraiser. And he was constantly sort of, uh, like, I'm auctioning off this piece of original art or this other, you know, hey, this other creator I like has donated this piece of art. Let's, like, sell these on eBay and get this yes. guy some money. Uh, that was really nice. That's nice. But then there's the other stuff <laughs> yes. that we talked about that is very bad. <laughs> yep. Of course. So. Yeah, he's still doing comics, though. You still find, like, Cerebus. Well, I say do comics, like Mike said. Mm-hmm. He doesn't draw anymore, uh, which is... You know, so it's kind of like weird cut and paste stuff. But I like, remember when yeah. he came back. What was it called? The like, he's like a new series. And is, then it, is that Glamour Puss? Glamour Puss. It was like yes. a fake fashion magazine mm. kind of thing. Those were pretty creative. I remember flipping through some yeah, of the guy. Were. I feel that like I wonder if Cerebus still gets mentioned in like university comic book courses these days with all of the baggage that's around it. Yeah, I, I wonder. But I still have a soft spot for those first three volumes. Mm. Uh, or four, I think it kind of ends around Jack's story. Is that like after that, there's like a huge shift to when Cerebus meets like this, you know, uh, ah, it's woman and she destroys everything. No. Ugh. Yeah. Then High Society still works phenomenally as a standalone volume, which uh, like even aside from the character of Cerebus in it, like it is this incredible evisceration of like um, of class systems and class structures. Mm-hmm. And so like the story and the art itself are uh, just legendary. So, yeah, High Society still has value. The rest, eh. Uh, So here's a question on Instagram from David Holland. And he says, speaking of the 2099 series in the recent podcast, I had action figures from them when I was younger. And one of my favorites was Halloween Jack. Do you know this character? No. Look him up while I'm reading this letter. He looks awesome. Uh, He continues, I never read the comics, but Halloween Jack became one of my favorite characters. Is there a character you grew to like, but never read the source material? I love this question. Uh, I don't think so. Wow, that guy looks weird. I was hoping for like a like a pumpkin head on his head. Well, that exists. There's already like a yeah, jack o' lantern. lantern. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this guy looks like the like 2099 version of someone like, like that, a like lizard some or freaky. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know they made 2099 action figures. I'm not surprised. Uh, you know what? I really liked the big gargoyle man that was part of 2099. Mm. I think he was on the X Men 2099, right? I never read uh, X Men. 
2099. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I learned early on in this podcast that Mike was not an X Men person and still remains not really to be an X Men person. Like some here and there. If it's a specific writer, that yeah. draws me to the X Men more but than you the X Men themselves. Chris Claremont's X Men, which I would have bet money on that you knew and loved. Yeah. Well, that one's so long and impenetrable. So that's my like <laughs> Marvel long run yeah. thing. Where... Well, Graham Morrison's X Men. You're all there for that. Yeah. That was very finite. So wait, what was your character that uh, you loved but never really read his comics? Well, I thought of a couple when I read this. One was uh, Box from. From Alpha Flight, which uh, in the start of Alpha Flight, Box was just this really blocky looking robot. And way later on, like I only read the first maybe 20 something issues of Alpha Flight, but much later on, Box was redesigned as something that looked a little more like I dare say like manga-ish mm. um, with this really cool helmet design and uh, a bit more of a humanoid shape and... Uh, and I think it was a different character. Madison Jeffries was like the guy who built that box versus the original robot. And I love the design of it. Never read a single comic with that version of box. But I used to like, you know, just doodle that version oh, here and really? there. I could never draw faces or yeah. like humans or things like that. But I do the odd doodle of like, you know, snake eyes or this version oh, of box. Oh, I'm trying to think like of that. like, who would I draw? You know who I used to draw my comics a lot because he was easy to draw was Shadowhawk. Speaking of image characters. Oh, the... He has like a wow. metal mask with yeah, like yeah. red eyes. And out of all the styles of um, like image comics, mm -hmm. that was the simplest. Very clean lines yeah. on that character. So it was yeah. very easy to draw. Uh, ones that have kind of captured my imagination that I think about every now and then, because I read about it once, I think in Wizard Magazine, and Mike will know what this is, was the League Legion of Substitute Heroes. Oh, yes. Like a group of like <laughs> just like huge losers. Created by Keith Giffen in a one-shot. Yeah. And the one that I always think about is Stone Boy, who <laughs> all he can do is turn to stone and then he can't move. Yeah. So the way that like his, his teammates would use him, would they like push him off a cliff <laughs> onto someone? That's really his own. I think Matter Eater Lad was on that oh no maybe not i don't see him here uh antenna boy chlorophyll kid color kid <laughs> double header dream girl fire lad infectious lass night girl polar boar porcupine pete rainbow girl star boy stone boy amazing uh yeah so they were part of his legion run and that, that's how they got introduced I remember um, Jeff Johns did a great Superman uh, story arc where he goes into the future and hangs out with the Legion again. And Stone Boy was used in a funny way there where like the Legion of Substitute Heroes like crashes some spaceship into like the villain's HQ. And Stone Boy is like standing on the cockpit, like flipping the bird with both hands <laughs> yeah. to the villain. So That's when funny. they crash, he crashes through the front windshield and like lands in the villain's like throne room or something. But other than that, like, yeah, I guess when I was a kid, like superheroes seemed very distant to me because mm -hmm. like I didn't have access like back issues or anything like that so i'd be like who is this speedball character <laughs> or this uh radical dude night thrasher who rides around on the skateboard <laughs> ah cool guy yeah so it's, it's mostly like that or like ambush bug i really liked speaking of key skiffin again mm -hmm. only because i had one issue that i bought in like a quarter bin somewhere and i was like i love this i have no idea what this is referencing like what the rest of this is but well did you ever read those source books because we no. talked about this on our uh, road no. trip recently i did not yeah. read those source books I, I had maybe one or two those are pretty cool because you'd flip through and you'd see a design of a character and you're, you'd think like i have never
never heard of this character. They look awesome. Where are they from? Oh my God, they're from like two issues only yeah. from like decades ago, and I will These never. These source find those books issues. would would be like encyclopedias, where it'd be just mm-hmm. like the image of the character and his full bio, mm-hmm. and that's all that it was. Yeah, the internet has kind of made those redundant, but mm-hmm. the early versions of those source books, I think, still have like a lot of nostalgic value for me, just based on the layouts and the art of them. I mean, you can still buy them. Mm-hmm. Mike was like, "I'm looking for them." I was like, "They're online." He's like, "I don't want those. <laughs> I don't want the cheap comics." This uh, brought it while we were shopping. It actually brought a good topic, which is like, what is our upper limit to spending on a comic, like mm-hmm. a single issue? Mike is more on the cheap side. I feel. I love my dollar bins and quarter bins. Because you said like, oh, I'm going to look these for in the dollar bin. I was like, they barely exist anymore, Mike. Like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to go to those like, not even the downtown conventions. Like a like flea the, market. It, yeah, flea markets are like airport conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just those. like somebody like, oh, I don't want to price these. I just like throw them all in a bin. I just want to get rid of yeah, them. Yeah, it's not that the comic is worth a mm. dollar or more or less. It's just they want to get rid of them. We should keep our eye peeled this yeah. summer because I'm sure there's a whole bunch of those like little conventions that last only one day. Yeah. So we should hit those up and we'll have uh, pulse pounding reporting that we can talk about them as well. Definitely. So what are we doing next week, Justin? Next week, we are cashing in on trends. People may be like, oh, they don't just talk about superheroes. They talk about other stuff, too. Wrong. <laughs> now we're all superhero focused. I guess technically this is our second episode about superhero, even though that like Copra is as far away from that as you can get mm-hmm. stylistically. But uh, Into the Spider-Verse came out by the time you hear this two weeks ago, I think. What, yeah, what's the release date? Like it's first this week? weekend. It's okay. Friday that we're recording this. Okay. So like in a week from now. So yeah, about it's been about for a week. So you got to see it. Mm-hmm. Now you want to know what is this Spider-Verse thing? Well, we will be talking about the original Spider-Verse, which was spearheaded by Amazing Spider-Man writer Dan Slott. And specifically, look, we're not going to read every comic that was part of this uh, kind of spider title crossover event, but most of them were collected in a Spider-Verse hardcover. And I have that one. And this is what we're going to discuss. Mike has read it as well. He's going to read it again. I... I think I still have the same volume. And it was actually quite a modestly sized event. It didn't hijack too many other books. It was basically like, here's the Spider-Verse main title and like a couple of crossovers. But arguably, mm-hmm. this is the comic that started the popularity that has now mired us for the last 10 years of like dimensions and alternate versions of things. Which will never, ever go away probably. And eh, I think it'll go maybe. away. Yeah, we'll I see. think people are already kind of getting tired of it. Mm-hmm. Like, But like, I remember when they announced the Into the Spider-Verse CGI movie, I'm like, how are they going to make... This is so like like referential and that you need to know what these things are. But now nah, they did it. People loved it. Now yeah. we're getting two more of them. Because the one coming out is actually just a part one of... Too. <laughs> and Chris Miller listens to the, our podcast now, so that's great. Yeah, as we learned in the last episode, yeah, that so. is not the actual Chris Miller. <laughs> it is someone that Mike knows. Because mm-hmm. every letter that we have is a plant. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what we'll be doing next week, Spider-Verse. Look for, if you want to read along with us, there's just a Spider-Verse hardcover. I think it's in paperback edition as well. It surely is, and it's surely it's still in print. very easily. If you have Marvel yeah. Now, the digital service, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're all organized, and it's easily readable, like you read it in a day. And I don't think it's, you don't need all the other stuff around it to understand what's going on. Does it help if you know that they're parodying at some point, like the um, Hostess Pie ad that <laughs> Spider-Man used to appear in, or uh, the written by Stan Lee Spider-Man newspaper strip? Yeah, but you can pick up context clues, and I think you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Did it introduce 
introduce any superheroes? Uh, do you remember? I don't think so because a lot of those uh, like Spider Man Noir, Spider Gwen already existed for a couple yeah. issues. Spider Man Noir, a couple years. Yeah. Spider Man Noir already existed for a couple years, and Miles Morales. I don't think they introduced any new characters. Mm. Yeah. Or like Spider Punk, I think maybe came out of that, didn't he? Uh, he did. Yeah. yeah. There was a couple of one shots introducing. Yeah, new people ones. are like, "What are they talking about?" Yeah. Well, you're gonna find out next week, and I think that. All those characters will be appearing in the end of the Spider-Verse movie. Even Spider-Punk. I saw an action figure of him like at a store. Oh, wow. So they're all there. Oops, that, all spiders. That's what we're talking about <laughs> next week. Until then, I'm Justin Glue. I'm Mike Wood. Keep reading comics. Spider comics. So, oh, yeah. Only spider comics. <laughs>